goes the way of all the earth. He takes back over his life. He thinks about the times he grew up in slavery as a child. At that time, he had a different name, in fact. At that time, his name was Hosea. Hosea means salvation. And to a slave with a name like salvation, you can tell that his parents were naming him with the future hope that they would once be saved and not be in slavery. So what happened? He remembers Passover. Oh, he remembers Passover because he was a firstborn son. So, So that first Passover, when the death angel passed through, and all of the firstborn children were were kind of at stake, at risk that night. He was passed over. Because there was blood on the doorposts. He was spared. By his faith in God. And the blood of the Lamb over the doorposts. He remembers that. And like his name suggested, he was saved. He left slavery. And then he remembers being chosen to go into the new land they were going to take. He and 12 others. And he remembers the frustration of of 10 of those spies saying, we can't do this, they're too strong. And he remembers thinking, don't you get it? I mean, it's the promise. It's who made the promise. You don't look at God through the lens of of your opponents and, and you say, oh, I see God through... In comparison to, to these people, we got to fight. He says, no, you got to see God through the promises He makes and the fact that He can always deliver. No matter what He's saying, no matter what the opponent looks like. He remembers the frustration of 40 years. But during those years, some of those years are really good though, because He just got to, He got to be the aid, the helper to, Mo, to Israel's leader. He remembers that. He remembers dwelling in God's presence. Remembers just lingering with God's presence in front of him. He remembers seeing seeing the the fire and and the pillar of smoke and knowing God's going to lead us through all these things. And then he remembers when his mentor died. The servant of the Lord, as they called him. And now he was up. He was now the leader. And he remembers God's words to him. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And he's seen God keep every promise that he made. Every promise. But he kind of laughs to himself in his old age. Because as he thinks about it, he was the last one to get his inheritance. I mean, think about that. He was the guy who, who went into the land... And, and said, we can do this, we can take them, we got this, God said it. And everybody else complained and said, no, we can't, we're going to get wiped out, we can't do this. And, and you kind of think the guy that believed, the guy that had faith, would be the first one to get what was coming to him. The first one to receive land. He was the last. And here he is, in his words, about to go the way of all the earth. And he's thinking about what he's going to say to the people of Israel. What is Joshua going to say? What are his last words going to be? Before we look at those last words, I want you to see his death. 
Go to Joshua chapter 24, would you? Joshua chapter 24. This is the last in our series on Be Strong. By the way, welcome back, Honey Rock folks. We're glad you're back. Um, I'll try to catch you up to speed, okay? How about that? <laughs> right. <laughs> we spent the summer in Joshua, um, and we have uh, been looking at what it takes to be strong in the Lord. We've looked at Joshua as a textbook, a historical account on how God's people can be strong in the promised land. We looked at it and we said, you know what? The promised land is kind of like our spiritual life. Like we're saved. We've arrived here at a place of salvation. We've been freed from Egypt, freed from slavery, free from sin. But now we've got to fight because there's enemies around us. The world still wants us. Satan still has a great plan for our lives, a terrible plan. We'll be out of fight. And so this last message is be strong to the end. And at the end of your life, I just want to ask the question, how do we leave a legacy like Joshua did? How do we do that? Let's look at Joshua's legacy. Joshua chapter 24. We're looking at verse 29. Um, the first week of this series... I said that, that Moses, over and over in the book of Joshua, Moses is called the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, all the time. Joshua never gets called that. Never. Until this verse. You wonder if he knew this was going to get written about him. Verse 29. After these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath-Serah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Here's his legacy. Verse 31. Israel served Yahweh throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything Yahweh had done for Israel. Now there's... There's kind of a, a, a positive and a negative in that verse 31. You kind of feel it, don't you? Like, it, people followed God during Joshua's time in leadership. And, and they even followed God after Joshua died. The elders that outlived him, they followed God and led well. But, but then, there's kind of that question mark about the future. And of course, you know, if you go to Judges, you see the question marks there for a good reason, because the people kind of go off course. And God raises up judges to bring the people back. Uh, people start doing what's right in their own eyes, which is often not so right at all. Um, Josh was finally called a servant of Yahweh. His legacy is he served the Lord wholeheartedly, and in his wake he left a people that knew God and loved God. Now, I just want you to see how, how they talk about his legacy here. They talk about it in two ways. Israel served the Lord. These are people that served God. We love God. We're serving Him alone. And they're people who um, experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. They knew what God did. And they remembered it. They loved it. They knew God was faithful. Joshua, when he died... By the way, Joshua is a Hebrew form of the word Jesus. And, and like I said earlier, his name was originally Hosea. Moses changed it to Joshua, okay? So, so his name was changed. Joshua, Hebrew form of the word we have for Jesus. So um, 
Joshua left behind people that served God. And so I think we ought to look at our legacy. When, when you think about leaving the earth, who are you going to leave behind? I think that our legacy is going to be measured in part by the people that we leave behind. In particular, the disciples that we leave behind. That's it. And if you have, if you have a, a bulletin, you have the notes in there, you can pull that out. Our legacy will be measured in part by the disciples that we leave, that we've invested in, that we leave behind. Now, our society uh, thinks sometimes about legacies and, and, and you think about um, when, when people die, there's usually a will and, and you know how it goes. I mean, sometimes families don't get along when stuff's distributed. Sometimes the things that you strive for so much, you die and then you leave it and then other people strive to get that stuff and they fight over it. And, and you know, sometimes people die and, and we want to have a little memorial to them. So we, so we buy a paver, you know, and it has their name on it. We want to honor them. But, but beyond those things that a lot of times the, that, that we say is important, this is probably much higher than those things. Who are you leaving behind? Who have you developed as a disciple? Who's, who are you leaving behind? And it begs the question, um, who did Jesus leave behind? Who did Jesus leave behind? Uh, Natalie this morning read out of Acts chapter 1, and, and I'm sure it was just a great day, you know, that day. Jesus ascends to heaven, and, and, and wouldn't you love to look, uh, you know, if you're looking down from heaven and you're the angel looking down, all the people are just going, you know, and, and if it was my kids, my kids would be there going, what are we looking at, you know? Uh, what's going on? You know, he's gone. All these people, all his disciples are standing there. No Pharisees, unless, unless they were converted Pharisees, but, but no disbelievers, only the believers, only the disciples were out there looking up as Jesus was ascending to heaven. And then he said before that, those last words that you all know so well, go and make disciples. Goodbye. I'm going to be with you forever. I'm going to be with you forever. And he goes. And so, if you ask the question, what did Jesus leave behind when he left? He left disciples standing there with their mouth hanging open. <laughs> but after a while, they stopped having their mouth gaping open. They, they closed their mouth and they said, let's start making disciples. Now, they had to get over some fear, right? There's a little bit of fear. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come to uh, and Pentecost happened. Then the Holy Spirit came and they got bold. And we're the legacy. We're the legacy of Jesus leaving. You're here because Jesus' disciples made disciples who made disciples who made disciples who made disciples, and here you are. That's why you're here. That's better than a pretty good inheritance, if you ask me. That's better than a paver, it's better than a seat. It's, it's, it's better than anything you can leave behind. We're here. Because they were faithful to make disciples. Who made disciples. Who made disciples. So, if Joshua left behind a people who loved God, can't talk about their kids, that's for judges, I'm not going to judges today. <laughs> but, if Joshua left behind a people that loved God, if Jesus left behind a people that knew that they had to pass this message on and teach everyone to obey everything that Christ commanded, 
how much more do we have to do that as well? So Joshua has a, a shot at, at kind of a last shot to form the people of Israel. He's been spending a good chunk of his life caring about that, maybe even being frustrated about that in the wilderness. And what he does is, his last words he models after a, uh, ancient uh, uh, treaties and covenants, the way, the way they laid them out. But at the heart of it is, Joshua wants to renew the covenant with Israel. He wants to say, God is great. He's done all these things for you. You better serve Him alone. Will you? And the people say, we will. Let's take a look at his words. Uh, look back at, we're in chapter 24, but look at verse 1 of chapter 24. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, the leaders, the judges, the officials of Israel, and they, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, living beyond the Euphrates River, and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him through Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but to Jacob and his family, they went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I could go on and on. But I just want you to see what, what Joshua does is he speaks for the Lord and he says, he says, your father Abraham came from idol worshipers. Did you catch that? They worshipped other gods beyond the river. And if Yahweh didn't step in and, and, and seize them out of their unbelief of, of the true God, we wouldn't be here today. It was God who initiated this thing. It's God that started the people of Israel. And when you went to slavery, it was God who gave you Moses and Aaron to lead you out. It's God that gave you the promised land. He just goes on and on and on and all these achievements. And, and you know what the crazy thing is? It's never about Joshua. It's never about, I led you. I did. He doesn't say that. He says, God did this. God led you. It's not about my legacy. It's about God. Number one. If we're going to be a people who make disciples that make disciples, we have to have a few different shifts in our thinking. And I think shift number one is, we've got to shift from this being my story to being God's story. To being God's story. By the way, just so you know, I'm, I'm not in any way negative on, uh, on, on people giving money for tributes to those that have died. I'm not against that, just so you know. I know that oftentimes we support great causes in the name of people that we love that have died and gone on to be with Christ. I'm not against that at all. All I'm saying is, this is even bigger. And oftentimes we, are, we do give, in the name of the deceased, into organizations that make disciples who make disciples. Perfect. Perfect. We have to have a mind shift from this being my story, Joshua's story, because he could have done that. He could have tried to solidify his legacy and said, I'm the guy who believed way before we were in the wilderness 40 years. I'm the guy that got it right. He could have told, you, told him all that stuff, and instead he said, God says, I led you. I did this. I freed you from slavery. God did it. God did it. 
sometimes in this life, we get so focused on what's going on in my life that we forget that our story is connected to the broader story of Scripture. Were you once a slave to sin? Well, then you once lived in Egypt. You know what that's like. And it might not have been 400 years of slavery, but for some of you, it might have been 40 years of slavery. And some of you, in your Christian walk, went through a dark time where you didn't really hold on to God very hard. It was like you were in a wilderness. And you went through those times. You see, your story is the Bible story, and that's God's story. You have to take a step back and say, my life is about what God is doing in my life. It's about what He's doing in other people's lives. And when you start to say that and say, what's God doing in my neighbor's life? What's that person's story? What's God doing redemptively there? And I wonder if I can jump into that. I wonder if I can be a Moses and lead my neighbor out of slavery to sin. I wonder if I can be a Joshua and help someone younger in their faith fight in the promised land and have victory. Because I've been through a lot of these things already and I know what it's like to walk with God and fight. You see? It's not your story, it's God's story and you're just living in it. And if you start to look at it like that, you look at people around you differently. Sunday school teachers, this is your little pep talk because this is all you. Parents who teach your kids the scriptures, this is all you. Because next week Sunday school starts and your teachers or kids, your teachers are going to be teaching you stories in the Bible. Part of this, what Joshua was doing here is he's saying, remember God did this? Well, they weren't there for it. The people Joshua was talking to, they weren't there in Egypt and they weren't in the wilderness. They all died. But Joshua says, I want you to remember, remember. Sunday school teachers, you're starting next week and, and what you're doing is so valuable because you're telling the kids these things actually happened and if God was active there, He's active in your life today. That connection has to be made. If God leads people out of slavery to sin, He does it today. And if God spares the lives of people then, He can do it today. If God protects people then, He does it now. If God parts the Red Sea and overcomes an insurmountable obstacle, He does it today. It's your story. But ultimately, it's God's story. And so we shift. We shift. Um, the, I think it's crazy that so much of our theology is embedded in story, right? Like, like, like we teach kids Bible stories, and, and, and God gives us like so much about what we know about God, we know because we read stories. It's just people doing stuff, and God doing stuff in their lives. And you say... Isn't it crazy? Sometimes I think about this. It's crazy that God trusts us to read a story and get the point and, and then apply it and say, this is what I know about God. Because he did this. It's crazy. I mean, I think more in like the line of Paul where it's like, just give me the statement about what is true. God is love. John told us that in, in 1 John. God is love. But then you look at the Old Testament and you, and you see like, God shows his love. God conquers giants. God makes his name great. I mean, and you see the stories of it. And sometimes we get it wrong. You know, so I know sometimes we get it wrong. 
don't know if you've seen the movie Evan Almighty. My kids love that movie. Um, right? God in the form of Morgan Freeman, right? Because he's perfect for that role. Uh, comes to Evan and says, God wants you to build an ark. Modern day guy, you know, he's like a congressman. God says, I want you to build an ark. Okay, so he starts building an ark, and he starts growing a beard and wearing robes, right? Looks crazy, especially for a congressman. And his wife thinks he's nuts, right? And she's like, I just got to get out of here. You're crazy. You're building a boat. And, uh, and at some point, uh, Morgan Freeman, as God, talks to the wife in this diner, and, and he starts talking about this crazy boat-building husband that she has. And he says, I just want to tell you, the, the story of the ark, people think it's about judgment, but it's really not. It's really about people walking into the ark side by side. Wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, sorry, I love the movie, but right there you lost me because it really is about God's judgment. And it really is about the fact that God saves people who believe Him, who have faith in Him. He really does save. And one day there's a place called hell and God's going to save believers from it. But for the rest, hell will come on like a flood. We've got to warn people. And we might be crazy old Noah standing out there doing it. People, please. By the way, they're making a movie about Noah, I think starring Russell Crowe next, next spring. That's pretty cool, I think, you know. As long as they do well on it, right? Um, as long as they do it right. None of this, none of this touchy-feely, walk in side by side, it's really nice. Um, that's what it's about. Uh, I'm sure that's a sub-point, by the way. Just, I'm being mean, but um, okay. Uh, so, so all I'm saying is, if this stuff actually happened, if God actually takes believing families and saves them from judgment, He does it today. And you'll be the crazy one saying, people, hell's real. And God wants a relationship with you. And they'll say, some of them will say, yeah, I want on the boat. Some of them will say, no, I don't. All that to say, teach your kids the Bible stories and tell them they really happened and tell them they happened today. God's not going to flood the earth today, but one day He's going to judge it. And it won't be water, it'll be fire. Teach your kids and tell them this is your story. And ultimately, it's God's story working its way through your life. Make the shift. Okay? So all that to say, (laughs) there's people that you know that God's working on. Try to enter into that. Try to show them where they're at in God's overarching story. They're slaves to sin. They believe and they get freed. And now they live in the promised land and they fight and they fight and they live for Christ. Not easy to live in the promised land, but it's worth it. Okay, the second shift. If we're going to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, secondly, we have to shift from, and here's my vocab word. I know it's back to school time, all right? Kids, it's back to school. So, so pull this one out on your teacher and see if they know what it means. Kids, okay? It's not fair if you're a teacher and you're sitting here. You just plug your ears, okay? Um, we have to shift from syncretism, there's your word, to sold-out service. Sold-out service. What does syncretism mean? Where's my teachers? I know you know this. Syncretism um, syncretism is when you take different worldviews and different religions and kind of just smash them together, right? Because, you know, Jesus can be God and, and so, so can Allah, and we just kind of put them together. That's syncretism. Syncretism is um, Christians who live just like the world. 
You know any of those? It, it, it's churches that that have the same kind of marriages as everybody else has. It's churches that, that don't care a bit about making disciples. They really just care about singing some songs and, and hearing some stuff out of the Bible to, to fill their minds up. Um, syncretism. It's, I'm going to take conflicting things and smash them together and, and try to make them work. It's like you crazy peanut butter and banana people. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? All right, just admit it. Who, who's out there? Oh, terrible. That's syncretism. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Sorry. Sorry. Um, why did Israel fail in the promised land? Why did Israel fail in the promised land? I have a picture to show you. Can we pull that up, Jim? An ancient inscription found in the Middle East. Uh, what you see there in the middle are, are, are these two, uh, maybe these are bulls. Uh, and the one on the left, is that your left? The one on the left is a male. The one on the right is supposed to be a female. Um, they're definitely animals, a tail between their legs there. And, and the one on the left is, um, is Bess with the headdress. And then the one on the right is Bess's wife, Beset. Now, um, the inscription above Bess, the little words above it, it says, and I quote, I bless you by Yahweh of Samaria and by his Asherah. Asherah is the wife of Baal, ancient gods. It says, I bless you by Yahweh of Samaria and by his Asherah. Yahweh, scholars believe, both Christian and secular believe, Yahweh is depicted as the bull calf on the bottom of your screen. Not so mighty there, is he? What went wrong in the promised land? Why is it when we get to the book of Judges, all of the victories that Joshua saw seem to turn into syncretism? We want to be like them. We want to be like them. Well, three reasons. You can write them down if you want or whatever. Uh, uh, these come from scholars, not from my brilliant study. But, but scholars usually say at least three reasons why Israel compromised. Number one, peer pressure. Peer pressure. You know, they left some people in the promised land, and the people that they left in the promised land would say, look at our great temples to our gods. Look at our great buildings. Don't you want to be like us? Look at how great we have it here. You want, to have, you want this. And, and Israel just felt the pressure, and they just caved in. There was so much pressure to conform. Second reason, money. Money. The Canaanites said, look at our wealth. Look at everything we got. Don't, don't you want the wealth and, the, and all the stuff that we have? Third reason, sex. Uh, look at our temples. They have prostitutes. That's how we do religion. It's great. I said, it's great. Look what we have going. I look at that list, you know, peer pressure, money, sex, and I say, well, syncretism sounds familiar. Sounds very familiar to me. And um, all that to say, Joshua challenges them, don't take the world and just smash it up against your faith and say, we hope this works out. I'll take a little bit of Jesus here, a little bit of worldliness here, and we'll make this happen. Look at what Joshua says. Uh, we're in chapter 24 still. 
Um, this is hard hitting. Um, look at verse 14. Now fear Yahweh and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River in Egypt and serve Yahweh. But if serving the Lord is undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're now living. As for me and my household, we will serve Yahweh. Now I love this because, did you catch what he says here? You want to serve the gods of the Amorites? We're living in their land right now. You know? I mean, it's like, we just beat these guys. You want to go back to them? The sad thing is, in Judges, they do start going back. But he says, I don't care. You do what you want. My family's serving the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord and serve other gods. It was Yahweh, our God Himself, who brought us and our parents out of Egypt from the land of slavery. You see, they're remembering the story. It's our story. It's God's story. And perform those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And Yahweh drove out from before us all the nations, including the Amorites. Yeah, we don't want their gods. We just kicked them out. And who's, who's, we lived in this land. We too will serve Yahweh because He is our God. And then Joshua said, Good work, people. No. He said, shockingly, You're not able, we're in verse 19, you're not able to serve Yahweh. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. Here's a verse we don't want to read in church. He will not forgive your rebellion or your sins. If you forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods, He will turn and bring disaster on you and will make an end of you after He has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve Yahweh. We are. And then Joshua said, Your witness is against yourselves that you've chosen to serve. Yahweh, we are witnesses, the people replied. Okay, okay. What's up with that? And I think what's going on here is he's saying, if you think you're going to serve the one true God and mix in pagan religion, you've got another thing coming. God won't stand for that. You can't serve two gods. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money, one or the other. Okay, I mean, this is, this is nothing new. We've known this for, for hundreds of years, thousands of years, but here it is. God's not going to forgive you. If you introduce other gods and worship other gods, you're in trouble. Because God's a jealous God, and He will not take any other rivals to Him. Yikes. You know, I mean, he just, he just lays it out. He's like, you can't, you can't do it. Either you're all in wholehearted service, or you're not. And God's going to curse you. He just wants to raise the stakes. He wants to tell them how zealous and jealous God is for His own glory. No rivals. So, what does this do with discipleship? We have to, we have to as a church, love making disciples who hate the world and love God. They love the people in the world, but they don't love the things of the world. And they're completely sold out to God. It's not mixing it all together. We've got to help people live sold out to God. It's just not enough. It's not enough for us as a church to evangelize and see people get saved. We have to walk with them 
and see them grow up in the faith. Otherwise, those people that receive Christ, they're going to walk into syncretism and say, oh, I'll, I'll take a little bit of Jesus so I don't go to hell, and I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and they're just wrecking their lives, and they're not living for Christ at all. We have to care about that. Because disciples are sold out. Okay, so let's say we take this seriously, and, and we want to do this. We want to make disciples and make disciples and make disciples. I'm still, as, as a leader in this church and as a board, we're talking about this at board meetings. Uh, our last conversation last month was, uh, how, how do we do this? How do we have a plan in place to disciple people in a better way? So we're actively engaged in discussion on this. But let me give a couple ideas. Our mission statement says, we exist to connect people to God through Jesus Christ. We exist to grow people to be like Christ. And we exist to serve others. Three words, connect, grow, serve. So the simple question is, who are you connecting to God? Who are you helping grow to be like Christ? And who are you serving? Personally. That's your legacy. That's your legacy. God wants to grow these people. He wants to use you to do it. Um, I don't want us to be the church that's standing outside like Jesus just ascended with our mouths hanging open when we say, who are you discipling? And we say, <laughs> you know, Jesus says, go disciple people. Go and make disciples. <laughs> I, I don't want that to be us. Um, uh, let me give you two examples from my life of discipleship. And uh, then we'll come to a close here. Just a couple practical examples. Uh, I'm going to list people from my last ministry. How about that? Youth pastor. Um, these are both adults, by the way. Uh, obviously, I discipled students. <laughs> but I also discipled some adults. One of them was very formal. Okay? Uh, meaning, I set a time and a place, and I had a Bible book we were looking at together. It wasn't that formal. I mean, it really it was, just, it was just us saying, you know what? Let's go out once a month. We're going to go to Subway. And, and we're going to have a sandwich together. And we're going to talk about 1 Thessalonians. Okay? We're going we're gonna to read a section of it a month and study it. And we're just going to talk about what it means for our life. That's simple. Any of you could do that. Anybody can do that. It doesn't require curriculum. Your curriculum is on your bookshelf. It's called your Bible. You just, you just pick a book. And you say, let's sit down once a month or every other week. Let's just sit down and talk about this. You like going to breakfast? Me too. Let's sit down and do that. And we just, we just talked. And, and he sharpened me a little bit, and I sharpened him a little bit, and we just went back and forth. And hopefully he's a better leader now than he was before because we met. Now, I would call that a little more formalized because I had a plan. It wasn't a, a rigid plan. We talked about life. You know, like we said, here's what First Thessalonians says. What's that saying to you about your life? And we just talked. So that's formal, but it's kind of informal too. Now, I had another, I would say, discipleship person in my life that was very informal. And by that, all I mean is, we didn't have a set time to meet. We just did life together. Like, we just hung out as families. And, we t and, and inevitably, we'd find ourselves talking about Jesus. And sometimes we'd say, you know what? How about at, during lunch, I come to your house during lunch, and I'll bring my sack lunch, and we'll just talk. And inevitably, we talk about Jesus. 
and what he's doing in our families. Now that wasn't like, open the Bible, let's study together. It wasn't that at all. It was just, talk about life, talk about Jesus. Very informal. There was no set schedule. But I know that I invested in him and he and me. And we sharpened each other. You can do that. And so I think sometimes when we talk about discipleship, we think, I've got to have this huge game plan. I'm going to have to buy curriculum. Take me to the bookstore. I've got to figure that. And it's just like, you've got the book on your shelf. And I think any of you know how to open up a calendar and say, let's just meet once a month, twice a month, and look at these passages. Let's do it. Now, I think we're probably, as a church, going to talk about a very specific plan, but any of you can start there. Because that's where I started. It didn't take much. It didn't take much. All I know is, if God is measuring our legacy by the disciples we leave behind, we got to be making disciples intentionally. Will you join us as a church in doing that? Will you make that your life goal? Will you work hard for that? My hope is you'll say yes. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, I, I've so often been the one standing outside, looking up in the air, saying, you know, what am I doing? And I know you want me to get down to the, the nitty-gritty work of just building into people. And, and I, so I pray that I and that we as a church will begin to start looking for people we can invest in. I, I, I just pray that this church would leave a huge legacy of making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. I pray that we'd have a heart like Joshua that was just so burdened for his people. He just wanted his people to know that God is God and he is, serve him alone. Help us teach people how to do that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to shift gears for a moment before we go. Um, I've got 10 minutes left, but maybe this will probably only take five. Um, the board has been discussing uh, forming a new council at this church, and I want to tell you what it's about. Uh, we're calling it, if we approve this as a church, we're calling it the Women's Advisory Council. We have been thinking about this, and, and, and really there, there's a burden there to say, we have, a, we have an elder and deacon board made up of men. Okay, we believe First Timothy two says that that men should take leadership in the church. That God has set it up this way. But the thing is, we also strongly affirm that men and women are equals, and and men don't lead in this church because they're better at it. That's not true. It's because God has given that task to us to do according to the New Testament, and that brings a little bit of of, of friction, a little bit of like, how do we how do we get a woman's wisdom and perspective on issues? How do we do that well? Because let's face it, the Bible elevates the importance of women. And we want to do that in the church. I mean, you think about it. When Jesus rose from the dead, the people that bore witness to that were women, whose testimony would never have been allowed in a Jewish court, by the way. They didn't allow women to testify officially like that. But Jesus chose women to see him first and to spread the word. 
And we have examples, other examples, I go on and on about women in the New Testament that had a huge role in the church, in leadership. So we've tried to struggle with this as a board and say, how do we, how do we affirm that there's this, there's this male leadership in the church that Paul seems to be promoting, and yet women are so gifted and so talented, and if we don't have their perspective, we're missing something. Our solution to that is to, uh, Lord willing, form a women's advisory council. It'd be a council made up of four to six women who would uh, meet separately from the board as well as meet with the board quarterly and talk about stuff going on in the church. What do you think about these proposals that we've got coming? What do you think about this? What have you been hearing from the church? That's the heart behind it, in a nutshell. Our goal is to elevate the role of women and say they are vital to the future of Three Lakes Church. We need their leadership input if we're going to succeed as a church. That's our goal, to remain faithful to the Bible and yet um, at the same time faithful to God's calling on women's life and leadership. I know I've met enough ladies, and even in this church, that say, I've got leadership gifts, where do I use them? Where do I plug in? And hopefully this might be an avenue for that. These will be ladies that are appointed by the board for this role, and we're very excited about this. So um, if you want to know more about our perspective on this, there's an informational sheet in the foyer. I didn't double-check to make sure it was there. It should be there this morning. If it's not, it'll be there for sure next week. But it should be in the foyer. Uh, Please take one, read it over, pray about it. And then we're going to vote on this September 29th in in our congregational meeting. Um, we'll also be welcoming in new members of the church to that day. So please come that day. Um, but be prayerful about this. If you have questions, if you read the document and it leaves you saying, what about this, what about that? Um, please contact an elder or a deacon. They can tell you more about this. They're listed on the back of the bulletin, by the way. You can see all of them. You can call me and talk to me about it. It's just my heart to see us leading the church in the best way possible And I believe that includes women as leaders because Jesus included them as well. So that's a step in that direction. Um, Finally, if you're here this morning and and you're checking things out, it's Labor Day, you thought, why not go to church? And, And you heard all about this. We talked about Noah a little bit in judgment. We talked about hell. And those are sobering realities. I don't want to leave this morning without giving you a chance to respond. So if everyone could bow their heads and close their eyes now, I just want to ask you, if you're here this morning, our message that we want to say every week, if we possibly can, is that Jesus came, he lived a perfect sinless life, and he died on the cross for your sins and mine. He paid the price you deserve to pay so that you don't have to go to hell. Jesus took hell on the cross for you. It's a free gift. And if you want to receive it, you can do that this morning. If you do receive it, what you're saying is, I want to follow Jesus all the rest of my life. No syncretism for me. No mashing up different religions or worldviews. I'm all in, all for Jesus. This is now my life. If that's you and you want his forgiveness, would you look up at me and we will pray together this morning. If that is you and you want to pray this morning, Would you look up at me? All right. So the couple of you that looked up, let's let's pray together. 
um, and mean what you say. You can pray these words after me. Jesus, I've been doing things according to my story for far too long. And I see that my story is going to lead to a very bad ending. Because I've sinned, because I've offended you, and so I want your forgiveness. Jesus, I want you to clean my heart. Forgive me on the basis of the fact that you died on the cross to pay for all that I've done. So now I want to live your story. I want to live a free life in your Son according to your plan. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. For it's in your name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, um, 